Welcome to our podcast, Regulation Matters, a clear conversation. I'm your host, Lyon Dempsey. For those that do not know me, I'm on the clear board of directors as well as the current chair of the National Certified Investigator Training Committee and vice chair of the Annual Conference Program Committee with CLEAR. As many of you may be aware, the Council on Licensure, Enforcement, and Regulation, or CLEAR, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. Our podcast is a chance for you to hear about the latest and greatest in our community. Today, I'm joined by Bill Bringman with Solutions for Information Design, Michael Beam with Stateside, and Sarah Appel with the Multi-State Collaborative on Military Credit. We're glad to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. Thanks. And again, thank you for joining me tonight. Um, the topic that we'd like to talk about today is credentialing of military members and spouses. There's a lot of going on in this area, and it would be good to get an update on the various programs, initiatives, and legislation. I know that you know we've certainly gone through this in North Carolina and dealt with it. Um, but, Bill, let's start with you, if you would. Um, what programs are in place to help service members earn credentials in planning for their civilian careers post-military service? Sure. Uh, Line, actually, thanks to CLEAR for doing this. And we've we've uh, had a couple opportunities to speak with the folks at CLEAR at the conferences. And uh, the, these are programs that are uh, active in each of the services now. Uh, there's a program called Credentialing Opportunities Online, or COOL for short, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, and uh, soon the, even the United States Coast Guard are coming online. And it gives opportunities for service members, active duty, reserve, and guardsmen uh, to be able to look at their military occupation specialty and find out, first of all, what are the civilian careers that align and behind what civilian careers align with those occupations they've been trained in uh, there are opportunities for them to pursue the national you know, credentials, mostly national certifications that align with those. Um, and the services help them pay for those uh, certifications and um, helps them just not only, not only get ready for their career, uh, next career when they leave the service, but it also helps them prepare for uh, – the services invest in it because it gives them an opportunity to get a better um, – Force multiplier helps them improve their skill sets for the military. Excellent. And um, it, there's also is there not like a new executive order by President Trump too for services? Actually, yeah. There's been a lot of uh, focus uh, on the national level from from uh, Congress to the White House, even in the previous administration. Uh, there was National Defense Authorization Act several years back. Stated the intent for the um, for the Congress asked the services to provide information to military members on exactly what certifications would be available to them would would relate and so these cool sites were created um, and largely you know honor that that request. Uh, the the last administration, the Obama administration, had a program called Joining Forces. And uh, President Obama, even in one of his uh, State of the Union addresses, made mention of military credentialing and the importance of it. And that was coming out of the high unemployment that military members faced after the last – the Great Recession. But it's continued to be an emphasis, and even President Trump recently posted a part of his executive order uh, uh, 
continuing the emphasis on credentialing of military members so it can highlight what they've been trained and educated and experienced in to translate into the uh, the corporate world when they when they pursue civilian careers after their military time. Right, after their separation. So what, I, I guess, looking at the COOL program, what types of credentials are available through that program? There, there's, uh, there's a lot. There's literally thousands of credentials. And what, what, is, what has shaped out with this or shaken out with this is the services uh, have a, through the Department of Defense, have a, a checklist uh, of credentialing standards, pretty much, that they try to adhere to to make sure that these are recognized, industry-approved, um, and valued uh, national certifications that the members can pursue. One thing that they, they try to do is look at, you know, applicability to each career field, but you'll see things ranging from such as the uh, automotive, automotive service excellence uh, certification for mechanics, uh, the Federal Aviation Administration's airframe and power plant certifications for for aircraft maintenance, which you find in m many of the services. Things like that are available, but you also find things, uh, emergency medical technicians, and that starts leading into the the getting a national certification that would apply to state licensure. That's one of the challenges that has been seen is is obviously being able to translate these certifications they attain and their experience into state licensure uh, in various professions and occupations. And that's kind of the area where the state licensing work uh, and legislation that, that both uh, Michael and Sarah have been working on has become so important as well. Uh, so those are examples of where military members pursue certifications with the assistance of the military, uh, helping them fund those programs through the COOL programs. Um, but that's that's kind of a start or a baseline of where they're getting started with pursuing certifications. Well, that that's really interesting. It, and um, I've been going through an EMT certification course this past uh, semester just for fun. And uh, you know that that national registry which we have. You know, North Carolina is not one of the states that is actually a member of that. But a lot of times they will at least do credentialing through that. So that's it's interesting and. It's a great avenue for especially service members that are coming out that have these skills that can be, you know, put to, to work immediately because there is such a demand. Well, let me, uh, I guess, switch over to Michael. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how service members are being aided by legislation in, in the state governments to improve their opportunities um, to use what they have in their military training and experience to gain these necessary credentials that are required for employment often? Absolutely, Line. Hey, and thank you for including me in this uh, podcast today. This is a, a really great opportunity to get this information out to a, a lot of people. Um, I, I guess I'd say right now, and 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 Bill and Sarah are going to be familiar with this, is that most states uh, th th there exists a statutory baseline of laws out there right now, and 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 I would think that all 50 states in Puerto Rico have laws right now to assist veterans in obtaining a, a variety of occupational licenses that and, and and these laws will will direct a licensing board or an agency to recognize equivalent military training education and experience towards whether the requirements for licensure or certification the the, the challenge is that that with that baseline is 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 some of the ambiguity of it and and 
so states have, have moved further to try to add detail, and, and they rushed to do this primarily back in 2012 when the uh, Licensure and Credentialing Task Force was created at DOD and the White House uh, helped to begin reaching out to the states, and, and um, you had a number of different efforts uh, starting first in the federal government and then, and then reaching out to the states. Um, and, and the states started moving forward on a, a variety of types of, of legislation. First, those laws that would, would just recognize the education experience and training. And then you had um, uh, state laws that, that uh, you know, were easing the access to licensure, uh, re re maybe waiving or reducing the fees, um, providing some automatic uh, reciprocity uh, for certain types of licenses. Um, in fact, a, a, one of the really successful programs early on was with the commercial driver's licenses and um, essentially waiving the skills test for um, uh, those service members that had at least, uh, I believe it was two years experience operating a commercial grade uh, motor vehicle or, or truck, there were trucks and buses as part of their military job. Um, and, and so they were waiving basically the skills test, bringing the, the vehicle, you know, to the testing facility for, for somebody who could demonstrate that they had that experience in the military. Now, some states right now, Illinois is one of them, are, 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 are even doing a one-to-one -one, um exchange on licenses. Um, so if you served in the military and you drove a truck or a bus, um, you could pick up the license and you wouldn't have to take retake any tests. Um, other examples of how the states are helping uh, separating service members um, is with a, a variety of compacts and, and including uh, service separating service members in, in, in those compacts. So there's the nurse licensure compact um, that, that allows uh, uh, folks who've served as, as corpsmen um, or, 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 or um, military medics uh, to use their state of legal residence as, as their home state for the privilege of practicing, uh, providing they can satisfy um, you know, nursing requirements. Um, you have another uh, compact, right, that, that, that right now that's moving through the states, the Interna interstate compact for EMS, and, and this compact was originally designed to enable EMS professionals to cross state lines in the, in the, uh, during the course of an emergency um, and, 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 and perform, uh, you know, the, the work that they perform. But what it also did is it simplifies endorsement requirements for transferring a license, and it also recognized the, the, the uh, experience, education, and training um, by corpsmen and medics. And, and so far, that interstate compact is passed in 16 states. The nurse licensure compact is passed in like 31 states. And there's also a physical therapy licensure compact that, that allows um, separating service members to designate a home state for their license and use the privilege to practice provision in the compact uh, to work in any of the other member states without having to go out and take the classes or secure a license. That's passed in about 22 states. Um, just one more note, it, it, uh, another very interesting um, uh, program that states have passed are the, the, the Pathways legislation. Um, and Virginia was a state, one of the first states 
to enable um, separated uh, corpsmen and medics to practice um, uh, their their uh, emergency medical skills or, or, or any other type of health care under the supervision of a doctor in Virginia in a health among six large six of the largest healthcare employers in the states um, and, and and serve under that doctor and now they can serve under a nurse um, until they're able to secure the license or credential they need um, or the additional training they need and um, Virginia has it's it's called the military medic and corpsman program um, it was passed in 2016 and just this last year it's been expanded into a uh, from a pilot to a full-time program. Louisiana and Maine have also passed legislation that allows uh, separating uh, corpsmen and medics to, to do the same work. And I believe, uh, in, in line, you'll keep me honest here, but I believe in North Carolina, uh, by rulemaking, you enable uh, uh, medics and corpsmen to do the same thing. And in California, they have a similar program. So these have all been very successful. Um, and and, and uh, you know, they've been really great opportunities, uh, maybe an alternative path to licensure in, in these states that have passed them. And some other states are watching pretty closely this year, considering similar legislation uh, to help corpsmen and medics. But that only helps corpsmen and medics, and it doesn't grant them a license. So there's some more work to be done in that area. Right. No, I understand that completely. Well, looking at it in a different way, and let me, let me kind of pose this question to both uh, Bill and Michael. Um, are there instances where military spouses also have these opportunities? I know like with licensure for us in, in North Carolina, um, you know, we do grant that. Um, but um, how, how exactly does that work for you guys, uh, looking both at the COOL program and then through state legislation? Well, right now for the COOL programs, uh, those are primarily military member focused. So it's not opportunities that are granted to the spouses uh, at this time. So the, the – the way the both the legislation and the DOD uh, intent, Department of Defense intent, has been focused on military members and optimizing their training opportunities. So spouses certainly aren't forgotten about, but this opportunity right now is, is for the military members. There are other programs for transitioning family members uh, that are helpful uh, through the family support centers and uh, readiness centers, uh, but the cool programs right now are military-focused. And in, in gotcha. terms of the military spouses in the states, that's been a big effort uh, by by one of the programs within the Department of Defense um, called the DSLO, um, the the State Liaison Office is is what it is, uh, and and they work to um, you know uh, advocate on behalf of the Department of Defense and and military families about mostly quality of life issues, but spousal employment has been a really big effort. Um, uh, primarily because there's just so many um, there's so many military spouses that are that are following whether their husbands or wives around the country, um, and 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 so many of them, um, it, and and I think the number Bill you'll you'll know if this is accurate, but I th think the last number I had was that the 72 percent of military spouses are faced with a requirement to reapply for a professional license um, in, in an occupation or profession in which they already work when they move. And, and it's, it's, it's become, it was a big problem early on. A number of states are out trying to address it. 
and they're addressing it in several ways. Um, you know, by efforts uh, passing legislation that would enable licensure by endorsement. Um, and, and, and I think it's North Carolina that requires uh, uh, its occupational licensing boards to issue a license to a military spouse that they can satisfy um, the conditions of holding a current license in another state and, and, and they can demonstrate competency um, in, in the occupation through some education credits or, or recent experience that they can show. And, 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 you've all, and North Carolina has also reduced the fees. Um, that's a big issue, too, for military spouses is, is either fee waivers, legislation, or reducing fees. Um, I mean, they can be deterred from securing licenses or certification just by the high cost of the license. Um, and, and it's a big deal on an enlisted family, um, especially if they're raising kids. Um, and since many of these families uh, are moving, um, you know, once every three or four years, it, it can get expensive. Um, and, and so they've also, uh, states have also expanded uh, the temporary licensure, that is, um, you know, allowing military spouses to receive um, uh, a temp temporary license uh, on, on relocating um, or allowing them, uh, again, um, uh, to go through an expedited application review um, to secure the license. There once was, a, and, and well, they can also take advantage of some of these compacts that I mentioned just a few minutes ago. And, and there was an effort, there was a federal effort um, under the Obama administration um, joining forces that was led by Dr. Um, Jill Biden um, I, I think that has is, is largely gone away, but but the, I know that uh, the, the vice president's wife Karen Pence has a similar effort underway right now that's that looks to aid um, military spouses uh, with with some expedited application review um, encouragement to the states, but also there was money I believe in the last NDAA that would help to cover the costs of, of licensure that they had to secure uh, after a move. Gotcha. Well, that's great. Well, let me, let me uh, actually move now to Sarah. Um, if you could uh, maybe tell us a little bit about the multi-state collaborative on military credit within the Midwestern Higher Education Compact. I guess uh, what states are participating? What are their goals? Sure, and uh, thanks again for in the invitation to uh, contribute to today's conversation. I'm learning a lot, so I appreciate that. The mission of the Multi-State Collaborative on Military Credit, lovingly known as MCMC, is to facilitate an interstate partnership of 13 states, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota and South Dakota, Ohio, and Wisconsin. And their main purpose is to translate competencies acquired by military-connected students through their military training and experiences and applying those toward meaningful college credits. States exchange information and share best practices in the areas of articulation of credit, certification and licensure, communication, and data and technology. So please check out our free resources at mecmhec.org backslash MCMC. And the MEC YouTube channel has over 20 of the MCMC webinars archived for your viewing pleasure. All of the MCMC states 
focus on the following three goals, assisting with critical life transitions from the military to post-secondary education, and then from post-secondary education to civilian employment. That's our, our top goal. Uh, and then we have number two, increasing post-secondary education completion rates by creating models for the consistent and also importantly, the transparent and effective awarding of credit for military training and experience uh, that can be scaled regionally and nationally, thereby lowering the cost of education and reducing the time to completion. And then the last one is establishing a strong network of support and communication, documentation, and data collection among institutions and organizations for those purpose of promoting shared interest and tracking the efficacy of efforts to uh, really enhance military-connected students' educational success. We've um, had some successes uh, in the, the last few years, but we do have hurdles. And right now, our biggest hurdle that we're facing is military-connected students are either getting too little or too much credit. So some of our states actually have legislation or policies where institutions must accept all of the American Council on Education's military credit recommendations, where they generally end up uh, as electives, which can then lead to issues with financial aid. Uh, the problem is really the amount of elective credits that the students are given. And these electives may flag the student as not showing satisfactory academic progress, even though in their own core major classes, they're passing with flying colors. But the institution may be looking at the data and say, wow, Look at these credit hours and they still haven't graduated so then the student is labeled as not showing academic progress and may be put on probation or their financial aid is impacted but then on the flip side we have some institutions that just automatically give credit for leadership and physical education that's it uh, so members of mcmc are working with legislators to reward the policy while others are working on streamlining the awarding of uh, military credit via a public-facing military-connected student portal at their institutions. And then some of them are using proprietary higher education software that create transfer articulations based on the information that the institution submits. Well, that's that's interesting when you, when you talk about, like, the uh, aspect of, of maybe having too much credit um, I, I went through a similar thing, and, and it's one of those things where schools uh, just need to look a little closer than just what the, the, the stats are showing because I had really high GPAs and high SATs, um, and I graduated 11th in my class, but it was a small school, so there were 20 people, and I got a rejection letter from a university that won't be named um, because I was graduating in the lower 50th percentile of my graduating class. So I, I know about not looking at the numbers correctly. Well, let me um, let me ask uh, kind of one last final question and, um, and and put this to all three of you. I guess what's on the horizon and where can people go to find out more uh, about this? I'll I'll start. This is Bill, and I think that some of the things that we have on the horizon, the cool cool programs continue to expand. Uh, each of the services approaches it a little bit differently uh, based upon their funding opportunities and budgets. Uh, but each of the each of the services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, soon to be Coast Guard, have found ways to provide some funding support for the credentials and certifications that members are, are pursuing. 
the programs and opportunities continue to expand. Uh, the Navy is is looking at more individual opportunities uh, that really do an individual look at an individual member's uh, amount of experience uh, and types of experience, and they're going to have a, a, another program line uh, taken off with that. Uh, the Department of Defense is is looking uh, at other programs, not necessarily credentialing specific, but something called the SkillBridge program that they, they have authority to do now, which allows military members in their last 180 days to pursue training uh, with industry and corporate uh, employers uh, to to still be on the the government and the military's payroll uh, while they receive training opportunities. Uh, so those are those are things that are out there um, that help the transitioning service members through credentials as well as other programs, and I, I think that uh, Michael may have some other thoughts on other career ro- readiness focus opportunities. Yeah, real quick, uh, 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 just following on that, Bill, um, and, and line the department. This is more like a, I guess, maybe a mindset. This this new focus on on what they call career readiness uh, focus, and and it's really an effort that's, I, I guess, best described as is ensuring that the separating service members are, are leaving the the military with, with uh, you know, content knowledge, um, skills, of course, habits, dispositions in 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 multiple subjects to be successful in whatever their future career is going to be and 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 this is no longer necessarily a a, a focus on getting the soldier sailor airman and marine into a four year college uh but perhaps includes a vocational track instead uh training in particular technology or or work track a, a apprenticeship um or bridge education to get that serviceman or woman into a meaningful job that can lead to a real career after the military. So it's it's not that they don't want you to go to a four-year college, but maybe that's not the best track for you. And and maybe your your experience and and the skill sets you acquired in the military, um, you know, they should be helping to point you in a different direction. Um, just one other thing. Uh, about the states is, it, and, and, and this could be part of the future, is that, line. I suspect you know this, and Sarah, you probably do too, um, that uh, the Department of Labor awarded uh, the National Conference of State Legislatures and the, the Council of State Governments, um, along with the National Governors Association, um, funding for a three-year project in the, to create an occupational licensing learning consortium. And it's intended really to try to harmonize uh, licensure and certification laws and ensure that, that, that licensing requirements in the state are not overly broad or burdensome and, and, and don't create some unnecessary barriers to the labor market, but also uh, to improve the portability for, for certain types of occupational licenses across state lines. And I suspect... Um, one of the things that's that's really neat that just passed in Arizona is um, uh, Doug Ducey, the governor, signed a bill into law that makes Arizona the first state in the nation um, to automatically grant um, occupational licenses to anyone who moves there um, with an unblemished credential from another state. And and it's just kind of neat because the legislature wants to bring more uh, uh, specialty professions and, and encourage more people to move into Arizona and, 
and help build its economy. Um, so so it, it'll be interesting to see what other states make of this and what other states follow suit and, 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 and how this occupational licensing learning consortium uh, recommends that states move forward after it, it concludes its work uh, at the end of this year. Interesting. And Sarah? Yeah, we've got some exciting uh, next steps for MCMC. I'm really happy to say that uh, MCMC is still very much involved with the credential engine. One of the MCMC executive committee members, Dr. Tim Sauer, has been deeply immersed with uh, Credential Engine, I think almost from the beginning. Uh, not only does he contribute uh, the higher education perspective, but he also shares the importance of how military-connected students fit in. Uh, right now, many of our states are experiencing an impetus from their governor or other state officials to really focus on career technical credit and workforce development. So MCMC is really starting to examine what role or roles our military-connected students can engage in these fields. We continue to work with Army University and um, really hope to be part of the Navy's plan to create a community college. Lumina Foundation uh, is interested in military learning, and MCMC has been asked to continue to be a part of that, and we're very excited and honored to maintain that collaboration. Excellent. Well, thank you, Bill, Michael, and Sarah, um, for your time and being a part of the CLEAR podcast. Um, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to share and learn from each other, and I want to thank you for speaking with us today. Um, and also, I want to thank our listeners. Um, we'll be back with another episode of Regulation Matters, a CLEAR conversation very soon. Please subscribe to our podcast. We're available on Podbean, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Google Play, as well as Stitcher, Spotify, or TuneIn. And if you enjoyed this podcast episode, please leave a rating or comment in the app. Your reviews help us improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners to find us. Feel free to visit our website at www.clearhq.org for additional resources and a calendar of upcoming training programs and events. Finally, I did want to thank our CLEAR staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson, our content coordinator and editor for this program. Once again, I'm Lyon Dempsey, and I hope to be speaking to you again very soon.